only 4% of universities in the U.S. are R1 research institutions, and Temple University is one of them. This means 100% of students have the opportunity to participate in hands-on learning and research with world-class faculty. With over 600 academic programs across 17 schools and colleges, Philadelphia's largest public university provides students with a rich variety of opportunities and propels graduates to succeed in their careers. Temple University. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. We're back to the Neil Haley Show, and I am really excited to talk about this uh, ESPN acclaimed short film, Black Girls Play, and I have Michelle Stevenson on the on the line. How are you, Michelle? And I'm excited to talk about this, and it's got to feel great that it's coming up really, really soon, right? Yes, I'm happy to be here. Thank you so much. We are happy to be on ESPN+. Plus. Absolutely. So tell us how this project got into being. How did it happen? Well, we've been in conversation with ESPN for a while about what project felt good for us to sort of sink our teeth into, given, you know, the vision we have with the work that we do. And um, at ESPN, uh, Kira Gaunt, the ethnomusicologist who wrote the book, The Games That Black Girls Play, uh, had a short TED talk that the ESPN shared with us, as well as an article she wrote in New York Times. And we were blown away by uh, all the myths she was busting in her book and the connecting the dots that she was making and centering, you know, the Black girls' black girls uh, musical experience as the foundation to our American popular culture. And there was no way we could say no. This was really an inspiring story that uh, we didn't know about and that we felt that most folks didn't know about that uh, needed to be told. Yes, yeah, so kind of without giving it all away, because you want people definitely to tune into ESPN Plus, what is the premise of the whole uh, short film? The premise is that the games that Black girls play that we see on the playground or that are played in the backyard in our families uh, on the block are really, they hold and are the uh, foundation of American popular culture and Black musical expression, from jazz to hip hop to gospel, um, to all of those musical forms, but even beyond that, the popular culture that we see today. So kind of explain to me more about that, like uh, on the playgrounds and stuff like that, how they kind of put out that type of music throughout when they're playing. Well, the games themselves um, retain uh, these cultural practices and musical expressions that date all the way back uh, to Africa before slavery. And what I'm talking about are certain certain pillars of, uh, of Black culture that include, you know, polyrhythmic uh, beats that you see in the hand games and that you feel in the hand games, the dance and the musical call and response that is also part of that practice, where we sing one thing and wait for the response and respond to that. And then there's a there's a level of innovation and um, improvisation that happens in many of the hand games <laughs> that allow for individual expression that also date back to that practice. And you see that repeated in gospel, in the call and response, in oratory practice, when you know we're asking the audience to participate in the conversations. And in jazz, uh, where you know, uh, improvisation and, um, and the individual expression within the collective is a central part of that expression. And of course, hip hop, and we see some of that in the film. Um, uh, how hip hop in some cases actually literally takes the hand games and gives it a hip hop twist. And I saw this experience in the playgrounds, uh, monitoring the playgrounds when I taught at St. Agnes in Oakland, it's in the city of Pittsburgh and uh, how black girls would play compared to when I was taught in, in affluent areas and just how you're right, the rhythmic, the different things, even from jumping rope to other types of games they, they, I guess I'm getting an understanding more. It was not just like, hey, we're, you know, we're just on there, not silent. It's, it's a real interaction. It's a real interaction. That's a, it's part of African expression, and it's an, it's it, what, what Kira Gaunt says is, it's an embodied memory, you know, and it dates back to slavery. You know, when the drum was taken away, um, um, other, 
other inventions were made to keep, you know, to keep one's own humanity, but also to keep a cultural tradition that is literally part of the DNA. And what's interesting, and you see in the film also is, you know, you see it across this country, and there are certain regional sort of twists, depending on the, depending on the game. But those same games you see are played all over the Caribbean and Brazil, wherever, you know, there was slavery, wherever there is a Black presence, there is those pillars of polyrhythm, call and response, uh, and, and, uh, and innovation that happen within the expression that you see everywhere. So the it's definitely thing. a passed down art, it sounds like to me. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Were you surprised by it? in a ways from doing this and, and, and seeing the whole process being put into place more. Did you learn new things from it? Oh, definitely. I was surprised, you know, you know, sometimes the academic rigor that Kira uh, puts into sort of connecting the dots. And, and um, it was, a, it was a big surprise to me that so much could be retained in in play. And you know, generally when we talk about play, it's a really important part of how we evolve as human beings. Play is play, but it's not just play, if I can say it. It 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 teaches us so much about not just how to be human, how to share, what how how to be in community. And this is just a particular type of expression of it. And we're centering play in terms of its importance to our to our civilization as human beings. So what is your hope that people will learn from watching this? Well, I hope people have fun. The, the film is a lot of fun. Um, it, 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 it takes uh, people down memory lane. Uh, uh, but also, you know, it's really about centering the contributions of Black women and Black young girls and providing, having that platform to share uh, that information is really important for me and, as a filmmaker. What have people that have viewed it, the feedback so far? Oh, they've loved it. People have been so happy. You've, we've had tears of joy and happiness. We've had young girls, you know, uh, come to the Q&A and thank us for, for centering that. And then for them going back to the playground, will have other meaning, you know, and we're very much looking forward to sharing more of this with the work that ESPN is doing through some community screenings that we'll be doing with uh, high schools and young and 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 young children all across the country. So um, I'm I'm looking forward to being able to share this so we kind of have a different take on the meaning of play. I mean, this is fabulous for sure. And what about young uh, black girls, what are they going to learn from watching this? I think it's 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 part of you know um, validating our own experiences, validating experiences of young black girls, and seeing you know that what they carry has a deep influence and deep meaning, and um, hopefully they can you know uh, walk a little prouder, <laughs> walk with their you know heads up a little higher uh, uh, when they watch this. And I think what you're, they're going to gather is the history, because a lot of times kids don't know history. And I have an undergrad in history, and I told you I was a former teacher. The history mm -hmm. and how uh, cultures pass down from generation to generation so we don't lose it, this film is going to keep that going in a way that that doesn't happen, right? Because at one point, people kind of will want to forget their culture. And this will be a wake-up call to people that have. Absolutely, absolutely. And us understanding that history is not just in the books. It's lived, right? It's lived. We pass things down through our food, through our practices, through our music, uh, through our play. Um, and being able to recognize that, I think, is really important. Yeah, and, and definitely it is. And it's a, it's a process and people are going to learn a lot. And I think that even some of it that's not even passed down, it literally comes from our DNA, that there, it, there is parts in our, in, our, in our energy, in our bodies that, that, guess what, because we've gone through whatever culture we came from, we're going to exhibit those things even not through passed down, right? And that's the other part that people forget about when they look at how do traditions continue to stay alive, even if they've really not had any experience? 
Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. That embodied part of what we carry um, really is important to recognize. All right. So that, again, everyone can go check it out on ESPN Plus. It's now streaming on ESPN Plus, uh, Black Girls Play. We appreciate it. It was such a great conversation. Thanks for stopping by. Oh, thank you so much for having me. You're listening and watching The Neil Haley Show. We'll be back in just a moment. One. We're back to the Neil Haley Show and special simulcast of the Love is Podcast. I'm excited to welcome first my co-host, Kim Sorrell. Kim, how are you? And I know you're excited about our guest. Doing great, Neil. And yes, very excited to introduce Catherine Warnock. Catherine, we have met before, and it's always such a pleasure to meet you. Vice President of Original Content of the best show that is out there, The Chosen, that is in theaters now and uh, has done so much, but you've done so much in your life. Like this isn't your first rodeo. You were head of family and um, content for MGM Studios and did incredible things there. You've just been this trailblazer, this leader in great entertainment, great content entertainment. I appreciate you attend. Catherine, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. This is a, a highlight of my day. Oh, good. I'm so glad to hear that. So I have tickets, actually, for uh, two hours from now to go to The Chosen. And it wasn't easy to get the tickets. Well, I mean, it was easy. I went online. But they're selling out. They're selling out. I mean, what are you experiencing with The Chosen being released right now? I mean, we're, we're seeing history being made. We're the first television show in history to release a full season in theaters. It's never been done before. So we have a lot of fun just like intentionally disrupting, um, but from a place of, no, we're a brand that gathers. This is a show that is, is, is deserves to be watched, not on the, on the big screen, of course, but also together. And so just seeing people laugh and cry together. I mean, this, every season I'm convinced The Chosen gets funnier and funnier and this <laughs> one does not disappoint, but it's exceptional to do it in community. And um, I, I can't wait to hear what you think, Kim. Yeah, I can't wait to see it. Wow. And I think that the whole season released that it's the ones that want to see it first, right? It's almost like, you know, we can watch a replay, but no, we want to be part of this community that gets to see it together. And I think that's the big thing is community is the chosen, right? And it's kind of, and people have copied your blueprint uh, after that fact, for sure of what you guys were meant to do. Yeah. I don't think people know just how ingrained into our core identity gathering is Neil. And so we're watching even just in, in, in the backroom chats of Hollywood, just a lot of questions of how do you do it? How do you gather this community, this community aspect of content creation we've never explored before. So we're seeing a bit of a renaissance in that area. It's exceptional. Well, everything that the chosen has done has kind of been groundbreaking and new territory and, and it's working. And I know that the goal I believe is 600 languages to be out in. I've got a friend who, uh, Alex, who maybe I don't know if you know him, but anyway, with Collide Media, who uh, is promoting that and trying to get that done. And I think that is such an ambitious goal, but everything that Chosen has done has been big, ambitious goals, like kind of like God's in charge. The sky is the limit. And so I love that. But how do you keep that going season after season? An amazing team, amazing leadership, and a very clear vision of uh, what we're here to do. We're here to to make an exceptional historical drama about the life of Jesus, and the world needs to meet the authentic Jesus. And so we're on a bastion talking about that. We're on a bastion saying that. And um, the 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 goal of six hundred translations, six hundred languages, just backs that up. To us, it, it's just a no brainer. And we have an amazing um, partner in the Come and See Foundation who are just taking that head on and making it their top priority. So it's a good day to be alive. No, it's it's definitely. And uh, where do you go from here, right? What's next? A lot of really fun things that we'll be we'll be talking about in the coming months. But we we really do hope to to we're intentional about this not being the end of our story. That uh, we have some things in development that we think will be really fun and really impactful to the world. So uh, watch this space. We're not. We're just getting started. Yeah, chances are they will be very impactful and very successful and do exactly what you want them to do. 
So I love the characters of the chosen. So we we read in the Bible about Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Peter, you know, whoever, but then seeing them brought to life in such an authentic, cool, wonderful way. I love that. I love that each character is definitely their own personality, their own person. And uh, and you see, there's conflict between them. They're actual people. They were actual people back in the day with Jesus. They're not just guys walking around with halos over their heads going, yeah, I love everybody, right? And the, how important is that to demonstrate that in The Chosen? The whole premise of of the chosen is is this historical drama about the life of Jesus but through the eyes of those that knew him best those that lived day in and day out with him during his ministry and it's extraordinary to watch them be humans as you've mentioned and so for me as a fan of the show first i walk away going oh my goodness because god has ingrained in me this this idea of catherine you have permission to be in process you have permission to be on a journey with me and i don't feel like that's a a cadence and a response that the church is very historically embraceive of. So to see a show, so I always kind of felt like a bit, oh, monkey in the middle, a little odd man out because I was like, do I have permission to be in process? God is telling me I do if I'm intentional about him, but the church, I'm hearing different messages sometimes. So as a young Christian, that was hard for me. God speaks that to me. And then I see it portrayed in the chosen. I see this continual reinforcement of just just follow me and you have permission to be in process. You have permission to let me take you from glory to glory, as he tells us in scripture. So I love that about The Chosen. Uh, it's, it sounds like it for sure. Well, how are their meetings? They got to be some pretty exciting meetings every time you guys are brainstorming ideas. You know, so, okay. So I, I've worked in Hollywood for, you know, 20 years at this point, And we all know that it's not all... you conflict isn't always welcome. Like pushing against the the grain isn't always welcomed. It's incredibly welcomed to the chosen. And that's from the top down. That's Dallas going push against me. Like I want the best ideas. I want the fullness of wisdom to, to rise to the top. And so our meetings are beautifully peaceful, collaborative, but also really like we're all, we're, we're jockeying for the fullness of what is it? Like what is the correct way forward? And it can't just be what one human brain thought up, right? It's this collaboration of the body coming together and and really putting their, as Dallas always says, loaves and fish into the mix. So very peaceful, very collaborative, but also very intentional. That's yeah, which is which which is great. And it goes back to what we started talking about at the very beginning of this community. Yes. So you're in community together, trying to come up with the best of the best of the best that you can possibly do. Everybody that I've had a chance to interview from The Chosen. They all say the same thing. And I know that they're sincere about it. And that is that cast and crew, Christian, non-Christian, doesn't matter. But there's a whole different feeling with this particular cast and crew that people are just happy to be there, connected. And it's like one big family. Is that what you experience? Oh, incredibly so. And it's to the point where we have crew members being asked to join Marvel productions or really elite productions and they turn them down and they would be making more money if they accepted it. But they go, no, I I want to stay in the chosen. Like the culture here is is unlike anything I've known or I've never felt so just permission to be myself. Um, and just, I feel so loved here. Or just even um, like a Paul Ben Vector who... <clears throat> Um, is in season four. You'll see him today when when you go, Kim. But he's he's obviously a, just a, a giant in Hollywood, like so respected. And he said, "This is the most amazing set I've ever worked on with the most amazing. Like, I've never experienced anything like this before." So there is truly a common theme of no, this is really a collaborative effort. It's it's peaceful. It's joyful. It. Like if you go at any time in between takes, they're joking around, they're making TikToks, they're playing football, they're playing Frisbee. Like the sweat you see on the actors is probably because they were just running around playing some sport two seconds before Dallas, you know, calls action. So it's, it's, it's fun. It's, it's really, really, really fun. Yeah. And it seems so much fun. And, uh, we always talk about next, can you, you're not able, I know Kim's going in two hours. You've seen it. it you're blown away, right? With season four. Right. So I, cause I'm a fan first. And so I'm like, you can't disappoint me in season three. I'm like, okay, where are we going from here? And every season 
Neil, it's sharper. It's it's funnier. The laughs are louder. The tears are stronger. Like uh, So this season does not disappoint. I feel like we've reached a completely new level this season. I have to tell you, Catherine, that it is hard for me to imagine the guys in their um, dress of the time, which basically are dresses, running around with Frisbees in between takes. I love that picture, but it's kind of funny. And I... Uh, always go it always goes back to leadership right like um the the reason the culture is what the culture is is because the leader and then the leader choosing the right people on down and i know that dallas's heart to him this is a calling it's not it's something he has to do right not just something he wants to do but something he has to do oh incredibly so and i i remember my first day on the job we met as a, a leadership team and we said Okay, we what are our core non-negotiables? Identity, core identity markers where we will never let go of these. This is just this is who we are and what sets us apart. And one of the four is playful. And that was Dallas just going Dallas and Daryl going, "We are playful." Like we that is we're we're going to make fun of ourselves. We're going to let people make fun of us. We're going to just be playful. We're going to insert that into our dialogue. Um, in this series. And you, I think you see that come through, but yes, it's, uh, it's unbelievably the top down. And we, um, that was one of the, the greatest moments, I think, from our organization, our brand perspective of just like kind of putting those lines in the sand of going, we will not stop being these things. Even if success might come, we will not stop being these things. And playfulness was one of them. And what do you, what could you see this? What, what, what are your predictions? Where this where can this go? You have the theater. Are there be theatrical releases all over the world? Uh, it's gonna or is it gonna go? Where where do you think it's gonna go? I mean, this season is proving to us that uh, even us, it's like, oh, do we think too small sometimes of of God? What you're capable of doing? But here we are rolling out globally theatrically right now. Like we're just coming off a global premiere tour that's been exceptional, and so for us, we're going okay. Um, we're really pressing into wisdom, just going, okay, what is, what are the right next steps? Like the, my whole, my whole job base is creating new original content for the chosen, like exploring what could be potentially on, on the pipeline. So there might be some fun things in, in the works, Neil, that I'm not allowed to share I yet. No, you're not allowed to share. You're, but I think we'll be talking more. The season. <laughs> Go, Kim. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's so funny. You know, from the very first season, things were good. I have to say that the very first episode, I kept thinking, uh, where's Jesus? Like, what's going on here? Where's Jesus? And I I kind of felt like for anybody who's not seen The Chosen yet, that I needed to get through that first episode. And, that, and then looking back at it, I realized how important, how so important it was to start at that place. And that first episode is vital to the to the rest of everything and so the first season was fantastic and then the second season it's like how can it be any better and then the third season it's like what are they how are they going to handle this I'm always so interested like how are they going to have Jesus walk on water how are they going to feed 5,000 you know what is this going to look like and there's so much more to go through this is season four there's going to be seven seasons so how do you up the ante like how how do you how do you decide how Jesus is going to walk on water? How do you decide what Eden is like when when she's not really described to us, right? When we know that Peter has a wife, but we don't know that her name is Eden. We don't know what she's like, and who doesn't love Eden? But how do you make decisions like that? I mean, that's where the writers are just exceptional, and they they really come together and they said they they tr they dive into scripture they dive into it they devour it ryan our lead writer he's just constantly in scripture and just meditating on what could be historically really happening in between the lines of scripture that are truly plausible but yet fully anchored in an al in alignment with scripture um so and they just keep elevating th th their craft and then Dallas, as a director, welcomes our cast into the mix and say, hey, evolve this. So, for example, Amber, who plays Tamar, she was only meant to be a day player. She was only meant to be in, you know, one episode, one scene, one storyline. And she just, it was just a no-brainer. Oh, she fits. Like, this is, 
not only is God on this, but this, this character we need to give a second look at. And so there's this fluidity that Dallas as a director and the writers are, 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 are there. They hold things very loosely and they say, Hey, let's let things be fluid and our cast can bring ideas. So in season three, when Matthew drops the hanky after being forget, like he and reconciling with his parents, that wasn't in the script. That was Matthew feeling permission to just explore. And that is my favorite moment of season three is this moment where Matthew, where Paris, who plays Matthew, drops the hanky because he just said, that, well, that's what Matthew would do because they just so press into their craft. Right. So I think it's just an elevation of craft throughout. Wow. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's so much more uh, coming. Uh, when is the season going to be available for everyone else after season four? We're working on that now. Um, our obviously our heart and our hope is to get it out as soon as possible into the app, free for everybody. So we'll be announcing that soon. We're just finalizing a few things, but very soon. All right. Well, I wouldn't be surprised if if things uh, end up staying in the theater longer than you expect. Wouldn't that be fun? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Never know. Like you were so surprised about season three and how uh, sellouts. Let's see yes. how many sellouts we're going to have again. So that's fantastic. People could check out the Best Places website, Catherine, for people to check out The Chosen. Where can they go? Yeah, thechosen.tv, chosenriseup.com. Uh, you can get tickets there. All right. Thanks again. Thanks so much. All right. That Thanks. was the simulcast of The Neil Haley Show and The Love Is Podcast. Guys, take care. We're back to Neil Haley's show, and I'm excited to welcome to the program Danielle Monet Truitt of Law and Order Organized Crime on NBC and Peacock, streaming on Peacock. How are you, Danielle? And uh, thanks for stopping I'm by. Great. Thanks. Thanks for having me. All right. For people, because again, I know when I put this on my YouTube channel, how Law and Order is su such a huge brand and put it out different places. People that are fans know this answer. But for other people who have not tuned in, tell us the premise of Law and Order Organized Crime. Uh, so Law and Order Organized Crime uh, is about the Organized Crime Control Bureau. Uh, we go after organized crime organizations, uh, you know, people who are doing uh, selling drugs, uh, sex trafficking, you know, all hacking, all kinds of uh, you wouldn't believe how many different kinds of organized crime <laughs> there is in this world. Um, it definitely was a bigger thing, you know, back in the 80s, 90s, 70s, 80s, 90s. But now it's definitely still something um, that happens. It's just a little bit more under the radar. So uh, we're a specialized task force that goes after those organizations uh, and tries to bring justice. And so far, we've been doing a pretty good job. <laughs> so the history of the NYC, this is the question I want to ask, because, you know, Sopranos fan, Gotti fan, are they still around? Is that the type of organized crime that's still around, or is it is it other other groups of organizations now kind of developing? I that? think I think it's a little bit of both. I you know I think the I think the types of organized crime, like you said, I think those kind are a little bit more underground now. You know, I don't think they. I think in this day and age, you know, they don't have as big of a hold on certain communities and stuff like that. I think a lot of stuff is kind of turning more into tech, you know, and hacking and all this kind of uh, gun making and, you know, stuff like that. So it's, I think it's shifted a little bit, but it's definitely still a thing. Still a thing. So there are still families and organized crime because that's the part of the show that people have to understand is this is real world happenings just yeah. in a different way. And that's why it's such a popular show, right? Because this is the type of crime that's happening today. That we don't really, yeah. you know, sometimes we see in the news, but not always. And it blows you away, right? I'm sure when you got part of this brand, you're like, holy cow, especially this show and said, I really didn't oh, think yeah. about there's things so before. much you don't. And I'm from California, so I definitely don't really think about it. You know, I think a lot of uh, the majority of the organized crime families and stuff are like they're in New York, Dominican, like they're in these other countries. California is not a place where it's like a lot of that going on. Um, so you, you don't really realize, you know, how much it is, but because a lot of organized crime, it, it really is a family institution and people are kind of born into it. You know, it's not really something that I feel is ever going to completely go away. You know, it, it's, it, and then in, in, 
what's happening, the the epidemic that's happening with this fentanyl and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Like there, there are people behind that, you know, um, in government as well. You know, it's it, so I I love the fact that our show, you know, gets to touch on all of those things. Exactly. And in a way it has hurt people, but not as bad as some of the other law and orders. So I'm sure you're happy about that because those are really heartbreaking in so many ways, but this is oh like, Oh my God. Yes. This is, I ours, guess if ours would, gets to be a little less, you know, it's a little less close to home, you know, cause a lot of people don't necessarily experience the organized crime, the effect of organized crime on a daily basis, but like with SBU and stuff like that, you know, yeah, that it, it hits close to home yeah. for many. Uh, and how, yeah. how those people were able to go back to work every day as I have a, a client I work with who's a former uh, firefighter and he talks these stories all the time about PTSD and stuff. Even anyone, anyone that serves us, boy, they go through a lot. And I'm sure preparing yeah. for this character. How did you prepare for this character? You know, if I'm completely honest, I got this role out of the blue. <laughs> <laughs> I was okay. at home in California with my two sons doing distance learning during the pandemic. Uh, I had no idea that I was, I didn't even audition for this part. Like I, I got this part based on some previous work that I had done on some other TV shows and they brought me on to the show. So I had very little time to prepare for this character. <laughs> I kind of had to use season one as a way to figure out who she is. You know, uh, you know, they, they of course they gave me the script and stuff like that. But I, a lot of times with with these TV shows and movies and things like that, things happen so fast. They go so fast. It's different from, you know, doing a play where you get time to sit with a character for four to six weeks and develop who they are. And then you put it on stage for an audience, you know, TV is, is very fast. You don't have a lot of time, um, to completely develop your character. You're kind of doing it with the showrunner, you know, with the writers, you guys are figuring out who is this woman, you know, she's brand new. Chris, he actually, you know, he lucked out. He was already stabler for, <laughs> for so many years, yeah. you know, he had all that time to develop who stabler is. So he came in, you know, completely knowing who his character was, but I had to figure out who she was, you know, how she navigates this this industry that she's in, uh, and how what her thoughts are about Stabler and, you know, and it's been a fun ride. It's been a fun ride developing her. I'm happy that, you know, in the fourth season, I feel very grounded in who she is and I'm, you know, excited to see this season through as well. No, I think that's that's awesome. Let's talk about your character really quickly and what you expect from your character this season compared to other seasons. Go ahead. Well, this this season, you know, I think my character is really trying. She's really grappling with the fact that she keeps losing people from her team. You know, people keep dying, um, and I think at a, at a certain point, you know, it takes a toll on a person's psyche and as the leader of the task force, you know, you have to look at yourself and say, you know, is there something I'm doing wrong? You know, am I not leading effectively? You know, how can I stop this cycle of people coming to this task force and then losing their life at some point, you know? Um, and so I think this season, you know, they're all grieving the death of Detective Whalen. Um, I think uh, Bell's way of coping is you know bringing in this new AI um, uh, expert to give them a new oh way boy. of policing that, yeah, that can maybe be a little bit more foolproof. Um, I think she's she's looking for solutions. She's a very solution oriented woman, um, which I really love about her. I'm I'm a little different. I'm a more emotional <laughs> woman, um, so you know Belle is trying the logic route you know, to, to get, to get a handle on things. And I think she's, she's going to be dealing with a lot of bureaucracy within the department. Um, she's going to be dealing with, you know, different personalities within the task force, you know, dealing with Stabler, dealing with Jet and Reyes. They have a whole messy thing going on with this affair. 
Um, and she's going to have to, you know, she's going to have to deal with it all. So um, I'm trying to ignore be this because pretty- I want to watch the show from beginning to end. Oh, is it all available on yes. Peacock? Can you watch catch up with all the it seasons is. on Peacock? You awesome. can. Yes, see, you see, can. This is the thing that you, this is why people need to get Peacock today. Look at me promoting this is because <laughs> Netflix and all these other platforms, guess what? They're old content. You can catch up a new, the new seasons of stuff that's coming out right now on NBC on Peacock, catch, yes. up, catch up old seasons and just stay on Peacock. It's really, it's the, probably yep. the best bang for your buck for a streaming platform, in my opinion. For, totally. I I'm agree. Because, I agree. Yeah, I know you definitely agree. <laughs> Best place people can go is ch- uh, to watch the show. It's Thursdays at 10 p.m. Uh, Eastern. Law and Order, Order Organized Crime. And we can follow you. What's best place social media-wise we can follow you? Where can we find you? I'm on Instagram. I'm on Instagram, Danielle Monet Truitt. And I'm also on Twitter. Same same name, Danielle Monet Truitt. And Facebook, Danielle Monet Truitt. Hey, I love the conversation. I could talk organized crime with you all day long because it intrigues me. And the AI and cybersecurity, that's one thing that definitely people are going to see in these episodes is cybersecurity is probably one of the biggest organized crime and the highest, and it keeps going. I have a client, uh, Greg Hanna, uh, and he talks about this all the time. Toss C3 and it's crazy, but I appreciate it, Danielle. Thanks for stopping by. All right, Thank you. Care. Thanks All for right, having You're me. listening and watching the Neil Haley Show. And we'll be back in just a moment. Hi, everyone. We're back to the Neil Haley Show. I'm excited to welcome the program first. My co-host, Paul Hall, author of the Hollow Man series, owner of, of uh, Hollow Man Publishing and American Made VA. Paul, how are you? And I know you're excited about our guest. Uh, I'm very excited. We have a, a, a brand new author coming along from Regency Romance uh, Historical Dramas, which is terrific. I've read the books. Uh, Mina Valentine, and she's going to tell us all about everything today. No, she's going to talk about how she's, we researched blew me away last time, Mina. Thanks again for stopping by. Because here's the thing, when you're looking at how much time it takes to write these books, and now how we see your beautiful library, you read a yeah. lot of books. So were you oh, dreaming I do. of and you haven't, romance novels haven't, for years? You haven't seen half of them. But here's my question. Have you been okay. always, when you've been an academic, wanting to write a romance novel? Is this always what you wanted to do? I've always been a writer. Um, the first time I can remember writing anything of any substance was when I was about 11. Um, but uh, most what I've done is um, through academia, a lot of journal articles. Um, so that's that's a far cry from from romance novels yeah but you've been a fan of romance novels too so add those two components together oh yeah, oh, yeah. i've read yeah i've read them forever um i used to sneak them while my you know from my mother because she didn't like me reading them <laughs> so i hide them under my bed and read them at night um and that was probably about 11 then too when you talk to other women about romance novels, what do they say to you while they like them? If they, some of them don't want to admit it, right? They, it's, right. It's, uh, yeah, uh, there's a lot of women that, that will, but um, it depends on the, um, is it a sexy uh, historical romance? Is it a spicy? Is it steamy? Um, I write fair, steamy um, romance novels. Most women don't admit to reading those, but those are probably the most popular. <laughs> so, um, and I, I always add a little bit of that, but it's it's good. Why is historical sexy when it talks about romance? Because why are historical times so intriguing to women, especially when women probably weren't considered like. Uh, were oh, we, uh, we were uh, we were um property um that's about it property um and most of the marriages uh, were put together based on what they could do for each other and staying within the aristocratic community um there were not a whole lot of love-based marriages but the time 
is so uh, romantic to a lot of women. There's a lot of protocol. Men were, they did nice things. They, they courted you. They brought you flowers. They, uh, they got to know your parents. You got to ride through Central Park. Uh, they bought you books. Uh, and so it, it's just that whole time that you can romanticize about that may or may not necessarily have been there. Oh, wow. And and that's the thing. Uh, and romanticize in a way of something different than the, the ho-hem hum of today, right? That's, uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And um, as we said in another podcast, um, everybody wants a happy ending. Everybody does. Uh, and that's the key element to a uh, romance novel. There has to be an, a, a, a happy ending. Um, if you think about the movie Love Story, it's not a romance. Um, she dies. They, the, the, yeah, she dies. It's not not a hap, happy ever after. Um, they ever wants the happy but, ever after. Yeah. It's right. The uh, one of HEAs, happily ever after. But there's a lot of research that has to be done, especially if you want um, credibility to the time. And, and uh, the books I wrote, um, they needed rams. One of the rams had gotten away. And they had to go to an auction to buy rams. And so they were talking about which were the best. I had to do research on, on sheep in, in England. I've done that with horses, carriages, food, clothing, um, hygiene. And sometimes uh, those things are kind of hard to dig up. Um, totally. But if you're a good researcher, which... I have a huge background in research, so um, I I I find it exciting. I I love doing research, and that's what keeps people entertained till the the juicy parts come, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. And I I um I can kind of take little bits and pieces of. Uh, my life or other people's lives and kind of incorporated into a, a time back when. All right. That's kind of fun. All right. So, the, that way, so that way I'm not writing an autobiography. <laughs> yes. And Mina Valentine is available everywhere on social media right now. And soon we'll be announcing the book, which looks like it's going to be pre-orders in a couple of weeks. So look forward to hopefully announcing that the next time you come on the show. Thanks again, Mina. Me all right. Thank you. You're welcome. You're listening and watching The Neil Haley Show. We'll be back in just a moment. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the special simulcast of The Neil Haley Show and Celebrity Interviews live from the Grotto with Greg Hanna. Greg, what's going on, man? How are you? I'm doing amazing, Neil. Having a great week, and I'm sure you are as well. You've been very busy this year. Oh, it's been a busy, already celebrity grotto. I mean, just imagine by the end of the year who Greg's going to get to talk to as he puts his laundry list of uh, celebrities. And this one here... Absolutely. I remember when I had him on the, the radio show, he talked so much about this amazing story, but I want to welcome Quentin Heron. We know him mostly from the blind side, but he has other projects as well after the blind side. Quentin, how are you? And it kind of, but it, your story mirrors Michael Orr's. And that's the thing that in certain ways of comeback stories of being down to nothing and to where you end up getting this opportunity. So I'm going to jump right into the question of Quentin before even this opportunity, did you want to be an actor? Was that something on your radar ever? Yes. Yes. I, uh, I started acting at age nine, but, uh, mostly in theater, but I always had the, the hopes of being in film and television. So acting was a lifelong dream of mine. Wow. Okay, great. great. What inspired up. you to want to be an actor at nine? I mean, geez, that's early. And what, what gave you the bug? Yeah, it was early. Um, so I got bullied a lot when I was a kid. And uh, I always wondered why didn't they like me? And my, I always had this love for film and TV. So my escape when I came home 
was to dive into these characters that I watched and I would pretend to be certain characters like uh when I put on my my church suit for Sunday for for church I would uh pretend to be James Bond and so I walk around the house and I'm talking with my little fake British accent <laughs> barking orders at my brother and my mom until I got a shoe thrown at me one day for that <laughs> and it was yeah it just but it was it was just funny I, I I had different characters I was Batman I was you know Michelangelo the orange ninja turtle you know what I mean I, I I just I would escape into fantasy world of these characters that I watched and I got good at imitating them and at the time I didn't know acting was what I wanted to do my mom signed me up for the school uh drama club I guess you call it and uh I did my first stage play and this was um it was during Black History Month, actually. I was nine years old, so this was 30 years ago. Wow. <laughs> it was like February something 30 years ago, because I'm 39 right now. And uh, yeah, I, I caught the bug because after we did that play and the kids responded to my performance, it was the first time that I felt like instead of them laughing at me, they were laughing with me and they were applauding and, and given the kind of emotion and gratitude that I, that I had longed for from them as opposed to what I was getting on the regular. So that right there, uh, I guess sparked that, that, that fire to, to seek out this profession. And, you know, again, at the end of the day, I was nine, so I didn't know, quite yet what it was but i know i had i got joy from doing it and that's what i wanted to pursue a long time and that's that's the, that's the thing is pursue it and know you love it but the journey wasn't easy right and we're going to talk yeah. a little bit about that story because that story is amazing but at nine what were your act, acting prospects you know we talk always these athletes say hey i know i'm going to be in the nfl well, it's going to be a, a challenge, but at this point at nine, did you have the resources available to really get the opportunities in acting? Well, see, at nine, all I had was drama in school and my mom telling me I can do it. So my mom was my biggest inspiration, motivation, influence, because, you know, she was very creative as well. She was a writer. Uh, she actually did a play herself. She wrote a play and directed it. Um, and it was just, she was always there lifting me up and letting me know that I could do anything I put my mind to. She's the reason why I'm here where I am today. She got me the, the audition for The Blind Side. My mom was my biggest supporter. And I try and be that for other kids and everything uh, coming up because it's very necessary and important in today's society that we have someone in our corner lifting us up, especially as a young child, when you aspire to do something, you know, it could come and go just as fast as it came if you don't have the right tools at your disposal, which is not necessarily things that you can buy, but the the, the creative uh, backing of someone who can see the vision that you have and, and help you seek it out. You know, like my mom, again, she was all I needed because in the beginning, when you're trying to do something, you have all this self-doubt on whether or not you can do it until that person in your life that has your ear starts to tell you you can. And then you start believing it because once you start believing it in here and here, then you're going to do it, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And that's what my mom did for me. She she allowed me to believe that I can, and so I did. No, that's great. So so that single that you have, you know, lead with love. And what was the inspiration for that? And you know, what what pictures and feelings do, does it bring to you when you're uh, performing that? So lead with love is uh it started because this is a model of mine. I believe in leading my life through love, and so I always also had a love for music. I started singing when I was four and um, I joined the church choir and stuff at nine as well. So, you know, those kind of intertwined with one another. I grew up singing in church, but lead with love was something that I always feel like doing. I believe in doing things out of love or not doing it at all. 
um, I'm a very positive minded person. So I said, if I was going to do music, I want to put out a message that not only represents me and my, and my goals in life, but can also inspire people and uplift them the way that the movie did. So that's what Lead With Love came to life from. You know, and that's interesting that you say that. What was music always part of you? So you said it was part of you in choir. But when you talk about the blind side and acting, were you doing music at the same time all the time or not? Or was music No, no, no. I, I was mainly singing in church. So music was like a passion of mine. Um, I think I decided long, long ago that I wanted to... Be, keep it as a love and not as a job you know what i mean i felt like if i pursued it as a career it would become work and it wouldn't be as fun you know what i mean you know i didn't want i don't want to put myself in a position where people can control the kind of music i do um you know control me as an artist or you know make me represent what they want me to represent no i'm i'm completely neutral if i'm going to do music i want to do the kind of music i want to do and put it out and you know if it blows up it blows up if it doesn't at least i did it you know so <laughs> oh that's great you know when we were uh in the green room earlier before we got started you know you had mentioned that you had done some other uh uh acting and and films or movies um you know after blindside you know what were those and uh what got you into this Yes. Um, after the blind side, I did a, a ton of uh, the movies. I did um, a movie called Halfway, uh, which was cool. I was approached by this director who he's he's British. He was based out of London. He had this story that he wrote, and it was about himself uh, as a child because he has family over here in the States, and he went to stay with them when he was younger. And so he wrote this story, but he said he wanted to do something different and instead of finding someone who looked like him and played a role he was a big fan of mine and wanted to see my take on it and so we went with that and it was pretty cool because i got to live out life on a a dairy farm for about a month <laughs> and uh i was living like a farmer i was up at 4 30 a.m feeding calves you know um doing doing farm work basically and it was tough, but it was it was interesting. And I got to milk a cow. I remember making a joke one time when they saw me how to milk a cow. I was like, this is, you know, most action I got from a woman in a long time. And, and it was, <laughs> everybody fell out. I was like, goodness, I got the second base with her. <laughs> so, but uh, no, it was, uh, it was fun. It was a lot of great experiences. I went horseback riding uh just living life in a farm town it was just a cool experience and let me tell you like the bowling alley out there i got the i got served the best one of the best bone-in ribeye steaks that i've ever had really and it was only ten dollars i was like oh my god <laughs> that's my favorite steak first of all bone-in ribeye yeah. let's go and it was at a bowling alley for ten dollars and it was just phenomenal so I was like, yeah, I love yeah. Monfort, Wisconsin was where I was at, you know. Amazing. Uh, yeah, so I, yeah, it was amazing. I did, I did a cool, a couple cool projects that I loved over the years. Um, I did my first rom-com a couple of years ago with Haley Duff, and uh, that was called The Wedding Pact 2. Um, it's out now on Amazon and a couple other things. And I, I was a part of this film called It's Not My Fault and I Don't Care Anyway. And that was Alan Thicke's uh, God Rest His Soul. That was his last film. Wow. And that was a cool, dark comedy we shot up in Canada. I interviewed Alan about a year before he passed away on my show. And what a great guy. Let's jump this specifically. Last time, I call this a part two, even though it's been eight years, nine years to drum a radio show. We, You talked about mm -hmm. the amazing story. A lot of people know that, but what about once you go to fame, you know, like it's from unknown to fame opposite Sandra Bullock, mm -hmm. the movie comes out. How did you respond to this limelight going to the Oscars, going to these places, all these different things, seeing people you've idolized your whole life now being in front of them. How did you handle that? Um, 
Oh man, it was it was definitely uh it took getting used to. It was a, a journey. But um I, I I for the most part just tried to keep everything I was feeling inside inside instead of outside because uh, on the outside I was like, oh my god, there's Jennifer Lopez. Oh my god, that's you know, it was just yeah, <laughs> it, I was losing it. I think I remember at one point I was standing at the Vanity Fair party and I saw J Lo and you know I'm from the Bronx, you know, Jenny from the block. Yeah, I, that's oh my god, I've been in love with her forever. <laughs> and I'm sitting there on like that's Jen, I'm gonna go talk to her. And I'm saying this to myself, I'm gonna go talk to her. Yeah, no. Uh, and I'm talking to myself like someone's in front of me. And I, I'm sure people see me. <laughs> and as soon as Mark Anthony walked away, I made my way over a beeline, started talking to her, and that was just, it made my night. Um, there was a, a moment where I'm standing at the bar and waiting for my drink, and then Tom Hanks comes up and starts talking to me, and I'm like, oh, my God, this is, dude, Forrest Gump is talking to me right now. This is crazy. <laughs> and I'll just, yeah. So, um, I don't know, taking in that moment was definitely something that, was a joyful experience for me. It's like these older people I grew up watching on TV who are now in my presence and they know who I am. And it's like, what? <laughs> you know what I mean? It was so cool, but uh, definitely um, an experience to remember for a lifetime. That's great. Do you do you stay in touch with any of the people that were in uh, the blind side with you, like Tim McGraw or Sandra Bullock or any of those people? Or um, I do keep in touch with Sandy. And uh, Jay, those are the two mains. And then uh, some of the characters, some of the other actors that I met along the way, uh, like T Bone, the one I mean, well, I call T Bone from uh, from The Walking Dead, but he played Alton in The Blind Side, who I beat up, and uh, and the one that Sandra like antagonizes at one point. Uh, yeah, me and him are good friends. Uh, Jay, who plays SJ. Me and him are great friends. We're like brothers. I know him more than half his life now. <laughs> he was he was 12 when we were filming. He's like, what, 27 now. So, and he's yeah, my boy. That's like my little brother, for real. Um, yeah. Uh, who else? Who else? Who else? I haven't spoke to Lily in years. I think the last time I saw her was like 10 years ago. And uh, I haven't been able to reconnect with Tim McGraw, but um, I know they're all still out there and I, I feel like we should probably do something one year for like a, like a little reunion or something. I don't know. This is the fifth. Exactly. I think it needs to some positivity. So let's talk to Greg. So Greg exactly. understands the story because Greg has not seen the blind side. It was one of my favorite movies, but there was a tarnish towards this movie, which I guess put Quentin back on center stage again. But ultimately, <laughs> it was a tremendous story. It goes to one of the most, I guess, Rudy, the blind side, uh, the one about the Alabama. There's only certain sports movies that have a story like that just makes people go tears in their eyes, right? Is that like Leon and, Marshall? Yeah. Things like yeah. that. When you agree, there's certain sports movies, and this is one of the mm -hmm. top ranked ones. And how to, to see this being tarnished, what were you, what was your response to this? How did you feel about this? And how did, I guess you just, you talked to Sandy, you have, that's funny when you like Greg to call your friend, Sandy and Sandra Bullock, come on now, but you know, kind of explain how you dealt with it. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those things where I found out about it at the same time the world did. It was a shock. Um, August 14th. <laughs> last year that uh day before my birthday i get this you know um espn thing and it says the blind side michael Orr, and i'm like oh wait we're in espn again so i start reading it and i'm looking i'm like damn uh what so it's like that hit me at the same time as everyone else did and then you know my phone started blowing up people calling this that and other uh it was it was an unfortunate uh, happening, you know, to to say the least, because knowing the family, I've have met the real family, kept in touch with the two East over the years, and um, uh, me and Michael never really had a relationship. You know, we met once 
And uh, I, I, so I saw him briefly before one of his games in 2010. He was going against the Falcons, and someone brought me down to the the tunnel with a team ready to come out and introduced us real quick right before they ran out. And I was like, Quentin is Michael. Michael, Quentin played you in the blind side. He said, oh, what's up, man? I, I, I was like, okay. I, that's, you go ahead and do it, man. <laughs> he ran off. So that was the first time we saw each other. Second time, we both did an autograph signing in Chicago. Uh, this was 2013. So this is the year that the Ravens won the Super Bowl. And I, I got to meet Michael, Ray Lewis, Ray Rice, and a couple other players um, <laughs> at this autograph signing. And so, but that was the extent of, of he and I 